one of the things that is interesting about watching younger people that they always think that they can they can have a chain of choices that after this or I will do this and then after this I will do this and then after that I will do that and then of course after that I will be able to do this but as one goes on just a little bit further <clears throat> and one watches the birth of their own children and then their own children begin to grow and their own children come to this place where they are thinking in terms of I will do this and after that I will do that and after that I will do that that one begins uh, to understand that uh, life is not like this then when one begins to have the grandchildren and the grandchildren begin to grow the speed of life picks up and is strong upon us and we in realize because of the increase in history which we have experienced and which we know that life is really shorter than we thought when we were younger and that actually the increase of the comprehension of history uh, seems to shorten life up for us this is true as we go on and consider not experientially but in study and in comprehension and being having some wisdom as we look about it as we begin to consider things of still longer periods there are two ways to do this one is in terms of reading study books and the other is in terms of places and I would want to bring these two elements together for a while this morning in terms of books in one way you can say study and becoming a bit more wise in the history of men and looking out across the world and reading books that have value in one way of course it makes our life longer and bigger because if we study with wisdom and not just in a repetitive fashion uh, we can live a certain number of lives at once this is one thing about good novels we live other people's lives it is uh, something about not study that is real study and not just for grades that gradually we can begin to live several lives at a time we can comprehend things we can go back over peer people's lives uh, or over long periods of history so in this sense studying history it increases the scope of our life but in another way of course it shortens it because as we begin to go down through the facts of history and see the long years that uh, have preceded us and we begin to place our own life in the midst of these long vast years uh, just as in the case of watching our children our grandchildren we begin to see our life as indeed almost like a point in the midst of time places do the same thing to us and it's one good reason for living in Europe uh, rather than places that do not have such a long history that it gives us wisdom in this regard and perhaps though Waymo is small if we understand what we're looking about around Waymo we understand there's no better place to comprehend this actually than, a, than Waymo itself we walk down through the villages and we see a date on the chalet and it says 1711 that's a long time ago we turn around on the other side of the village street and we look up under the eaves and it says 1705 that's longer yet sometimes I've stood in Waymo at night and happily before they put in the brighter neon lights which rather spoils the game but uh, before they did that 
And I stood down in the old part of the village and half closed my eyes, just sort of squinted it. And I could see the old village as it was back through the years. The years, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and all the way back to the older period. And if you know where to stand, I suppose in spite of the neon lights, you can still half close your eyes and feel the flow of the history of the village that has passed. And then, beyond that, if you know where to look, and look merely in the curve of the hill back here to where the village used to be, one can see the old church that was built at about 1200 at the special order of the Pope. If you know how to look in the village and the hillside there, you can see where the chalets must have been. And you can see that, indeed, there was quite a little village there before the Black Death wiped it out. Then, as one turns in a place like Waymo, and one begins to feel two things, the length of history and the shortness of one's life, of course, all we have to do is turn in a circle uh, or in a swing around in 180 degrees and look down into the Rune Valley. And if we really know what we're looking at there, we don't have to have a very great imagination back at the same time when the village rested back here to think of the gold being taken from Germany through the Rhone Valley, up over St. Bernard's Pass. But then suddenly the Castle Chillon, the Castle of St. Maurice, means something more because these were toll points in that day in which a little of the gold of the Pope was taken out uh, on the way uh, to Italy. And so we look down the valley and the years begin to stretch on. And two things. In one way, our lives seem greater for understanding. In another way, they're shortened up by comparison. But of course, once we're looking down into the Rhone Valley, if we really know what we're looking for, we do not stop at the year, at the time when the village was here, uh, nor seeing the gold being taken on the way to the Pope, but we see the Romans coming north, up over the St. Bernard Pass, through the place where now St. Maurice is which was a Roman garrison. Uh, we can think of uh, a revanche, which was their central control point, just uh, up beyond Vevey uh, and Lausanne. And some archaeologists say that at one time there was a, a city there of between 100 and 200,000 people. And this may seem great to us, and I think it is high, but it was a big city. And again, if you know how to look, and those of us who have been to Avanche and love Avanche, we can think of it standing here and standing at the gate that faces Germany. You can visualize the extent of the city reaching all the way from that which later became the medieval town up over the down into past the theater and past the temple on the other side. And we stand here and we view history. And as I say, it has the double effect, the effect of understanding more and therefore life seeming greater in one way but our own life suddenly shortens in comparison to the year. And of course, beyond that, there are the Helvetas, and Helvetas holding a vanche. And beyond that, you can go into the museum uh, in, in the library, the university library in Lausanne, and see Glare's great painting there by the stairs, uh, under the yoke, where we see that the picture of the Helvetas stopping the Romans, with the Don Timidi still there. And it could be the Don Timidi of today, and of course, it was almost the same, surely. And we see that the Helvetas, and this indeed is history, at one time stopped the Romans and made the Romans pass under the yoke, as the Romans like to do to other people. And so suddenly again, here I stand in the midst of all this. And then I have a question. Who am I? Who am I? By the time we go back to there, of course, we've gone back to the second step of 2,000 years.
The first thousand back to the old village. The second thousand back to the time of the Romans. And if we choose the number 60, somewhat arbitrarily, but because of some of the dates I want to look at, uh, standing at 60 B.C., uh, Pompeii has been crushed out. Think of all the people that have passed before that, as we step back into history, 2,000 years ago. Car Carthage has been destroyed for already 100 years. If we go back another 500 years to 560, and now let's see what we've done. We've taken 1,000 years back to the village, 1,000 years back to the Rome and to the Romans, a thousand and then another 500 years, and we'll bring it to 560. And, of course, we remember that in 562, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has died. But notice what we've done in stepping back into these three big steps. A thousand years to the village, a thousand years to the Rome. Five hundred years back. But already what we've done is already passed over all the long years that the Etruscans and the Greeks divided Italy between them. We have stepped back already over all the battles among the Greeks after Alexander died. We have stepped back over the whole Greek Empire, over the whole Persian Empire, over the, right over the fall of Babylonian. Masses and masses and masses of people. And lo, as we study in their art forms and in their history, they're the same kind of people as myself. I feel an identification here. And then I must begin to ask again, my few years of life, who am I? Who am I? Let's step back another 500 years, and it brings us to 1,600 B.C. We're taking big steps, you see. A thousand years, a thousand years, 500, 500, 1,600 B.C. What have we stepped over this time? We have stepped right over the second rise of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. The whole terrible Assyrian Empire has been stepped by with just one great, large step. The Battle of Carchemish that changed the world. We've just passed it by and we haven't even looked at it on the way. Those great ringing proud names of Pharaoh Necho, Nabopolassar, Ashurbanipal, Esarhaddon, Sennacherib, Sargon, Shalemazar, Tiglath-Pileser. We haven't even mentioned them in passing. We've walked right by. And what does it mean? I am back at 1,600 or 1,060 B.C. I'll tell you what it means standing in this place where places and history meet. I will tell you what it means because there was a culture in the valley somewhere near Egg. At 2000 B.C., an unbroken culture in the place of Waymo from the day where we're speaking about here at 2000 B.C. all the way up to our own day. Men are already hunting and fishing over these hills. We find their instruments as we dig in our gardens. They hunted over these hills. They climbed up here somewhere to worship. And not only that, but you mustn't forget that every day we walk in our gardens, we cross their graves. These men who lived 4,000 years ago in Wayne. And I look at their lives and I think of their bones. And I ask the question, who am I? In my 50, 60, 70, or if it lasts, 90 short years of life. So we're not finished with history. We take another big step of 500 years. Another 500-year step to 1,560 B.C. Much of the history of the Egyptians have already passed. So we take another big step of 1,000 years to 2,560 B.C. The last of the pyramids have just been finished. Think of these years as they... I think as we step for me, my, my mind really swirls. 
thousand years, five hundred years, time after time in these huge steps. And the last of the pyramids have just been finished. The Sphinx is already about a hundred years old. The Great Pyramid is 150 years old. So built, mind you, all those years ago that the joints in the stone are only one to one ten thousand of an inch. Who am I in the light of the history of man? And what am I worth? I step right over Abraham. But notice the people of Mesopotamia are already trading with India. Travel was common and relatively safe and relatively easy. Not with jets, but not hard, even back there. Another 500 years in a great step to 3060 B.C., and I'm at the time of the Sumerians. Already they're carrying on a written correspondence with the people of the Persian Gulf. Gulf. Business is being carried out with the same intensity, though perhaps with slightly different force, than our great commercialization of today. Egypt already is a unified nation all the way back there. I take another 500-year step, quickly now, to 3,560 B.C. And in Mesopotamia, they're already building with arches, the same kind of arches which were the heart of every architectural construction until 1900 or 1890, already back there. And then I hold my breath, and I take the, the bigger step still, another 2,000 years, and I'm still in the area of written history. I haven't stepped out of it yet. Thousands of people, millions of people, and very much like ourselves. And already before that, there is the Tower of Babel, the flood, the fall of man. These things that in the flow of space-time history, in one way a prehistory, in another way they're the things which sets the whole structure of all the history that follows right up to our own day. And back there in that period, it is the same. Men love. Men hate. There's childbirth and childhood. There's titanic ambition. And already there is death. And I know this is so because I hear Jesus say, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. These people are the same kind of people as myself. How my personal life then uh, which I've had or will have, no matter how long it stretches out normally, shrinks before history. I watch, I build, I build my little wall, and then I look at, the, look at that which has spanned down through the centuries, and the walls crumble as the wall that bulges as we pass the church and come on up towards Chesolite. We see the bulging wall. It'll fall soon. It'll fall. And I ask, what have I built? What have I built? The graves of the men I cross, that men will cross my grave if Christ does not come back. And I almost hear in my mind, in my mind, Brahms, great, great uh, music, all flesh is grass. Looking at history this way, this is the first view of history. I am shrunk. I am crushed. I am left crying in myself. Who am I? And what's the meaning of it all? Why the struggle? Why the struggle? And what is the significance? But now we come to the second view of history. And we will look at history another way. And we begin in a way at this place that sounds at first like a theological abstraction. But it is from the scripture. It's a scriptural statement. God is a spirit. 
And as we examine the scriptural exegesis of this phrase, God is a spirit, two things are brought to us on the basis of this. First, it means he is not material. He is not mass. He is not energy particles. He is something different. He is spirit. He is not merely that which the universe is extended. But it is something more as well as that he is what he is not. He is something. He is personal. He is a personal God. Theologically, we have a statement built on this and on many other things that the scripture has said about God and wherein God has revealed himself. You know, first it sounds like a very dry kind of a sentence that we would say, what does it mean to a man of the 20th century? Is it not an old sentence that can be forgotten? God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. A dry sentence in the 20th century. Let's throw it away and think of some modern senses in the McLuhan fashion, something like this. But this is what God says about himself. God is an infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Adult sentence? Well, it depends how you look on this sentence. Let's think of it for a moment. Infinite. And place it into the scope of history we have just been considering, which is so battering if it stands as brute fact and autonomous. God is infinite. What does it mean in the midst of this history? Well, it means this. And that is, wherever man goes, God is this. That's what it means in this context. It means something else, too, philosophically. But that's what it means in the context of our study this morning. Wherever man goes, God is there. Does it sound old-fashioned now? Of course not. It is completely in the discussion, not only of this morning's study and sermon, but in the discussion of modern man. Wherever man goes, God is there. The second, the second word, eternal. Eternal. What does it mean? Not in a philosophic way, though, though it means much in that as well, and in philosophic answers. But in the framework of our morning's morning study, it means this. It means back through all history, God was there. Is that old-fashioned now? Of course not. Suddenly we have a grid. Infinite, wherever man goes, God is there. Eternal, wherever, back through all history, God is there. We have the grid, the warp and the woof of space and time, which is history, of course. And so we find that here now, looking at history this way, we have a grid. A grid which changes that which we have already looked at, as we shall see. God is infinite, wherever man goes, God is there. God is eternal. Back through all history, God was there. And then that tremendous word, unchangeable, unchangeable. In a world uh, which thinks of indeterminacy, uh, this becomes tremendously important. In the world of John Cage's chance music that turns out to be noise, suddenly this word is meaningful in a, in a way that is no longer just bare theological in its, in its thought. God is unchangeable. That runs like this now in this history we have been thinking of. That which he has promised to do, he will do. That which he has done, he can do again. Because he is unchangeable, he will neither grow weak nor will he grow fickle. He acts with consistency on the basis of his character. 
And in that setting, we can think of the 139th Psalm, verses 7 through 12. Whither I shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee. But the night shineth as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Think of the 20th century discussion. Think of the fact of looking back through history and feeling the shortness of time and the question of who am I and what is the meaning of me after all. And then I put it in this setting, and indeed it's very different. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Or we can think of it in the terms of the 90th Psalm, verses 1 and 2. Lo, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. What is it in 20th century terms, in the 20th century theological discussion? It is simply this. God is there. That's it. Adam walked with God before the fall. Enoch walked with God before the flood. Noah walked with God in fellowship at the time of the flood. When Noah was floating in the ark, it did not matter when or where he landed. Wherever it was, he could build an altar because God was there. Float where you will, ark. It makes no difference. When the ark grounds, God is there. Time and when or where, the grid of time and space. When we enter into correlated history, not because that which is in the Bible before 2000 and Abraham is not history, but because now we can correlate it with known history and secular history, which we have from our study. When we enter into correlated history at 2000, we stand at the time of Abraham, and we see Abraham as a little boy in school, in the high culture or of the Chaldees. Later he's called forth, and he goes across the great fertile crescent, passes Damascus, and comes down into Palestine. But let's understand something. At 2000, as it was with Enoch and as it was with the others, so it is with Noah in floating in the ark. So it is with Abraham. As God called him forth, it was not just God in Haran or even just God in Palestine, but Abraham understood something. Abraham understood that be it Haran or be it Palestine, it didn't matter because God was in both places. God went with him as he proceeded from Haran to Palestine, but Abraham understood something. Not only did God go with him, but God waited for him through the year and over the months. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Dead words, only dead to those who hear them, only in a repetitive, sort of dead credo sense. Uh, Not when we understand it, down into the structure of the problem uh, that we every man faces if he thinks at all. God is a spirit. He is personal. And he is not material, but he is personal, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Don't not a bit of it. 
God with Abraham at the time when the friendship covenant was cut in Genesis 15. Very interesting thing, which has, uh, which we find has ties all the way back later into the custom of China uh, at a later period. The cutting of the friendship covenant, wherein a beast was cut, and then the two who were making an eternal covenant walked down through between the pieces of the beast, which had been divided, and which was practiced in China up until almost our own day. And there in the midst of the cutting of the friendship covenant between God and Abraham, we find that God made a promise, and that is this land wherein Abraham walked would belong to his descendants 400 years later. It was a specific promise. It would belong to his descendants 400 years later. Here are the gifts and the calling of God. But you must understand something, because God is personal, and he is infinite, and he is eternal and unchangeable. Abraham understood that when those 400 years passed and his own body had rotted away, when it came to his descendants 400 years later, the same God would be there to fulfill the promise. Now life changes. Suddenly it begins to shift. Life begins to take on an entirely different comprehension in such a grid as this. It wasn't just it would happen, but the God would be there, the same God, unchangeable, the same personal God, when Abraham's descendants came. And God would keep the covenant. Step, we're moving toward ourselves now. We're coming in big steps backward. We have said 2,000. Let us come to take 500 years and more, and it brings us to 1,500 in the time of Moses. We have stepped over Joseph, and Joseph also had learned this same great truth of who this God is that indeed is there. Because we find that whether he was in Palestine or they carried him as a slave into Egypt, whether he was in the palace or in the prison, it didn't make any difference to this God. Through the space and through the time, it was exactly the same. Joseph found the God there, this same personal God there, keeping his covenants, keeping his promise, in the prison, in the palace, in Palestine, in Egypt. It didn't change a thing. This is the great lesson of Moses, among other lessons, and that is through the wilderness, Long years in the wilderness, it didn't matter. When he stood at the burning bush, and God, this personal God, spoke out from the burning bush, the great message is this, is that I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of your fathers. I talked to Abraham. I kept his pride promise to him. I kept my pride talked, and I kept my promise to Isaac. I walked with Jacob, and now I speak here, and I say, I am. And, of course, most of us here know the Hebrew enough to know this, and that is, in the Greek, it can be translated all three ways. I have been, I am, I will be. There's no difference, O oh Moses. I am not a new God. I am the God of your father. And as time passed and they escaped from Egypt, don't be afraid that you enter the wilderness, because, after all, God is there in the pillar of fire and the smoke, and he will leave. He led last night. He leads today. This personal God will lead tomorrow. Don't be afraid, O oh Moses. I hear your words. I'll go up with you into that strange and to you unknown land of Palestine. If Moses dies, it makes no difference as far as God is concerned and his dealing with men because Joshua's sons and Moses is dead, but God leads on still 
and it's made very, very plain, something that's very striking in the history of Joshua. The heathen roundabout thought that gods must be the gods of the hills or the gods of the valleys. You know, they were, they were, they were localized spatially. But not this God. Not this God. The God, this God is the God of the hills. But don't be afraid, Joshua. Don't be afraid of the valley, because I'm God of the valley as well. This is who I am, this personal God. The southern part of Palestine in the great southern campaign, of course God is there. Sweep up north, way to the north line. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Nothing changes. God is there still. In the yesterday, the day, and the tomorrow, in the north and the south, in the valley and the hill, nothing changes. Because in this regard, because this God, this God is there at every place. Another great big 500-year step, and we come back to 1000 B.C. in the time of David. And David knew this. David fled from Saul. But one thing David understood, he never would have to fly far enough to escape being in the presence of the personal God who had spoken to him and who he knew. Never. Must he fly down toward the Mediterranean Sea and into the land of the Philistines? It makes no difference to David. He understood God is there. Is he in the hole in some cave where nobody, where he seems shut away with only his soldiers across the mouth of the cave? It doesn't matter. He talks to God in the cave. Later in Jerusalem, when he lives in his palace, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Why is it that David did not need to avenge himself against Saul? Because he understood that this personal God was the God of his tomorrow as well as his today. Why was it that he was overcome with his sin when he understood what he had done with Bathsheba and all the rest? It was because he understood that his sin was not a horizontal thing alone, a sociological or psychological thing only. He understood that there was somebody he had sinned before. It is against thee I have sinned. David. Absalom can chase him from his throne and he has to cross over Jordan and go out into the less civilized portion. You don't find that suddenly at the Jordan River uh, David comes to a complete shift of gears as it was. Not at all. He understood something. God, of course God was with him in Jerusalem. But over here on the other side of Jordan, all David understood. It doesn't matter because my integration point the reality of a personal one to whom I can speak and who will deal with me, he's still there. And he'll be there if I come back to Jerusalem. It makes no change. And if you read the story of David, you understand this is his great comprehension. A man that comprehends that history is not just going nowhere. History is not a chance configuration. History has a, there is something that is fixed in the midst of the change. And that is, this God is there, this personal God who is infinite, unchangeable, eternal. I take another 500-year step, a step back toward myself, and I'm in the time of Daniel. But I have passed over Elijah and Elisha, and we mustn't pass them by so easily. Because after Elijah was translated, you remember Elisha asked an intriguing question. Because now Elijah is gone. He's seen him go. He's seen him gone. And so he comes back to the Jordan River, and he comes back to the Jordan River, and he takes the mantle of Elisha, and he strikes the river, and he says, Where is the Lord God of Elisha? He didn't have to worry. He was right there. That's where that God of Elisha was. Some hours have passed. Space had been crossed. Elisha didn't have to worry. 
The God of Elisha was right there where Elisha was. Just as the God of Elijah was also now with Elijah as Elijah had been translated. Because after all, God, God is a personal God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We have passed over Jonah. We have passed over Jonah. You know, Jonah isn't the only one who's been in the sight of a fish. I don't know if you know that or not. But in the old whaling days, uh, the old American whaling days, some other men got swallowed up by fish and later came out as well. But I find an interesting thing here. Jonah, inside or outside of the fish, it didn't matter. He could talk to God. I'm sure that those old New England whalers, though they might have been hardy sailors and good swearers, yet nevertheless, when they were inside of their fish, they prayed too. And they didn't have to worry. The epidermis of a fish didn't make a limitation for the one who is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable. Would he go to Palestine? Would he be in Palestine or go to Nineveh? It didn't matter. On the hill above Nineveh, he understood something. Not only God was unchangeable because he was a merciful God, but he could sit on the hill above Nineveh and he could grow and see a gourd grow. And he knew that all he had to do was speak. And this God was there just as much as this God had been with him in Palestine, just as much as he had heard him when he made that tremendous prayer that you find in the book of Jonah when he was down into the base of the mountains uh, as he had gone into the deep. God is both places. God is all these places. And history is different. That's why these men understood history was different. These men were wiser men than modern men who think history is meaningless. We have passed over in our big jump, this Isaiah. Isaiah knew the same thing. Isaiah saw the northern empire fall under the great Assyrian thrust. Isaiah, however, was a man who understood something, and that is his ultimate face-to-faceness was, was not with Tiglath-Pileser, Shalemazer, Sargon II, or Sennacherib, as Sennacherib came against Jerusalem at the time of Hezekiah, but Isaiah was a man who understood that what he was face to face with basically was not Sennacherib, but God. This is why Isaiah was the man he was. That's why at the time uh, of Sennacherib's coming, they did not all faint and fall on their face. They were able to say, indeed, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, 4, these terrific words. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones, that concludes Sennacherib, is as a storm against the wall. Why could he say that? He could say that because he understood who this God really was. It's not a God who is just a name. It is a God who has revealed himself, who is really there, who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and he has made men in his own image, and men can understand him in a very real way, though not exhaustive. Jeremiah was exactly the same when later, 150 years later, the Babylonian Empire, the revived, uh, the revived Babylonian Empire, came down against the southern empire. And in such a place, we have this passage which you read today in your scripture reading of Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. If you open your Bibles to that place for a minute. Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15. I don't want to have to read it all. Jeremiah 32, 6 through 15. A remarkable thing. 
Everybody was selling their land. A depression in land had set in. The land values were down to zero. Why? Because the conqueror was at the door. The conqueror was at the door. The Babylonians had swept down into the southern nation and they understood that they were going to be taken and land values were down to nothing. But Jeremiah was not this kind of a man. Jeremiah understood something. Jeremiah understood that God was there and God made a promise. And God told him to do something. Jeremiah told that uh, his, um, uh, this man, who was his relative, uh, was coming and offering him a field in Anatoth, the place where Jeremiah came from. And of course, nobody wanted to buy it. Nobody but a fool would buy it. Nobody but a fool would buy it. Or a man who understood the promises of God. And so we find God said, don't be afraid, go ahead and buy it, buy it. And seal it up, and you find some very interesting notes here and how land was bought and sold and how it was sealed and the two different kind of writings so that the so that the record wouldn't be lost. Many interesting things in this. And here old Jeremiah sits in the court of the prison. He's a prisoner. So he's a prisoner in a land that's finished. But never mind, says God, go ahead. Go ahead and buy the land, seal it up in a proper way, make so sure the records are safe. And this is the reason in the, 50, in the 14th and 15th verses. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, that means the legal evidences of the sale, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence which is open, so they, they were both things to make it safe, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in life. Seventy years? Who cares? God will be there. Infinite. Eternal. Unchangeable. History now is real. And Jeremiah's life is real. He is not a shadow. Jeremiah's life means Jeremiah's life doesn't end with a few days, even if later he's going to be dragged down into Egypt because he can seal this with his name and history is going to bring forth something and this space-time land is going to be valuable again tomorrow. The very opposite of an existential leap. The very opposite of an upper story thing. That space-time land is going in Anatoth is going to have meaning tomorrow because there is a fixed factor, not a static factor, but a personal God. A personal God who is here today, O Jeremiah, and who is there tomorrow. And don't be afraid, because this is the kind of a world we live in. A real situation in which 500 years, 1,000 years, 400 years, 70 years, nothing, these things change. My own life seems constricted to seem meaningless. Jeremiah could ask, why should, what does it matter? Here I am in the pit. But God says, oh no. History is meaning, and you have meaning, O Jeremiah. Sign your signature, and one day your descendant will have a nice piece of land in Anatoth because I am there. The very opposite of the modern existential leap of faith. This is why Jeremiah in 1619 can say, O Lord, my strength and my fortress. This is not just a pious statement. It isn't a contentless religious statement. It is rooted in the God who is there. But we were back at the time of Daniel in our 500 years and just said these have passed in between. Daniel was the same. Daniel understood something. Is he in the den of lions? It doesn't matter. God is there. Is he out? God is there. 
The king understood something. He could call down into the den alliance, and he understood that if this god was really the god Daniel said he is, God was in the den alliance, just as much as when Daniel was sitting in his nice house and praying with the windows open. And, of course, God was there. He understood, too, this man Daniel, and it made him a man who was free from the political pressures of his day. All these things are the most practical things you can think about. Here's a man who was free from the political pressures of his day. He lived under the whole Babylonian glory. He lived under the whole span of it. He was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. He watched the king's path as he grew older. Nebuchadnezzar, Amiel Murdoch, Narablisser, Nabonidus, and, the Bel- and Belshazzar, and the coming of the Persians, and he lived through them all. And in each case, because he understood that God was there and these men were not the ultimate environment. Because of this, he could treat them in service and be helpful, but at the same time, he was not slaves to them. He was a free man. And the reason he was a free man is he realized there was another, there was somebody else there, as well as evil Murdoch and Belshazzar. He understood it. And who was there was this God who was there. The God he had known, the God he would know, the God he would know forever, and the God who indeed was such as the real and the great king. And it was on this basis, and you can think of the piece of music, Belshazzar's feet, and all the noise is there. And you can suddenly hear this man speaking. And what does he say? He says, keep thy gifts. Keep thy gifts. This day your empire's over. But that doesn't mean his sociological structure was completely gone. It didn't mean his world was at an end, because he understood, as is so clear from the book of Daniel, in the yesterday of his own day, the today of his own day, and the tomorrow of his own day, there is a king in an empire that does not change. There is a God who is there, personal indeed, unchangeable, infinite, eternal, and an empire that would not be shaken when the Persians stormed Babylon. I come down another 500 years, and I'm at 60 B.C., 60 B.C., and I see Anna, a little old lady, a prophetess, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And you must understand that if you stand at 60 B.C., 60 B.C., Anna's husband had already been dead for 30 years. So she's a widow a long time, this lady. She's not so old as she's going to be later. But she understood something. She knew something of the king of Israel, and she knew something of the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel that was not a product of chance, but a product of the promises of God, and that he, and the kind of a God he was, was going to fulfill them. Anna, if you had asked her, would not have put them perhaps in such sticky theological words, but she would have understood, nevertheless, that God was a spirit, God was a spirit, just as later is spoken in the scriptures. She would have understood that, and she might not have put it, as I say, into such sticky theological words, but she would have, if you'd asked him, what kind of a God is this? Why are you waiting for the promises? When here the whole land is conquered by the Romans and it seems so utterly hopeless, why are you going on with optimism? And she wouldn't put a big smile on her face and say, well, I just look at things optimistically, though rationally I should be a nihilist. That isn't what she would have said. She would have looked at you and she would have said, with love and sobriety. There is a God, and he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Not in those words, but she was somebody who understood something. And the years rolled off. 
60, 59, 58, 57. And then we come to the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is born. Jesus is born. And then Jesus is dead. And then Jesus is raised. And then Jesus is ascended. But he says to us before he dies, don't be afraid, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'm coming again to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost passed. And then on goes time, on goes space. And much has changed, but nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Stephen, before they killed him, looked up into heaven and he saw a vision. And he saw Jesus. This Jesus there on the right hand of God the Father. Paul, the great man Paul, walking the Damascus Road in total, total agnosticism concerning Jesus, suddenly was confronted with Jesus and spoke to him in space and time and in history in a human language, the Hebrew tongue, couched therefore in grammar and in lexicon words. John, on the Isle of Patmos, a few years later, and he heard a great voice behind him and he turned around and he saw the crucified but now raised, glorified Christ and spoke to him. Always it's the same. Always the same. Always the, the thing that puts meaning to the whole and makes the whole thing not to be just the existential concept of history going nowhere or the Eastern concept of entering the water and causing no ripples and therefore history having no meaning, which means my history having no meaning. The thing that makes the difference in each case is that this one is there and he isn't just a concept in the minds of men, but he really is there. And then the years roll on after John and the Isle of Patmos and a few years later we find again we're down here at St. Maurice and we're at the time of the Roman garrison. Right there, which we can see, those of us against the window, the place of the Roman garrison. And we have this magnificent story which is very exciting to me as you know of Marius, the Roman centurion. Roman centurion, and he's there at Saint Mar what is now called St. Maurice, it was called something else then. And he was in the Roman garrison. He had become a Christian, and he really knew about this God, and he understood about this God. And then came this tremendous command that must have shaken him to the core that the Roman legions were to go out and to kill the Christians, right down here in these valleys, right down here. And then you have that, what I think is one of the most beautiful stories that one could imagine. And it is historic, so we can't seems to be totally historic, though we can't be sure exactly of the date, and that is that Mars, who never had, had never had dishonored the Roman insignia as a good centurion, faced the dilemma, but he understood who was king, and he took off the Roman insignia, but so he wouldn't dishonor it, he handed it carefully to his leader, stepped over among the Christians, and was killed. Here is life, the very opposite of modern man's thinking, but couched in something. Mars understood who was there. That made the difference. Think of up here now at Avanche, where I've spoken of Avanche, and the, the Roman cemetery. I've spoken of the great Roman garrison, and I didn't mention the German soldiers coming in, coming into Avanche from Germany, and what, how great it must have seemed after the barbaric hordes of Germany to come into a real Roman city again of Avanche with all its, all its splendor though not like Rome, of course, but still splendid with its theater and all the rest. But there was something more splendid about Avanche, and the place to see what it means is in the cemetery. Because as we have, men have dug down in the cemetery, they found what one might expect there. And that is Christianity had come to Avanche, and you can tell exactly how, how it came, and the proportion of the Christians in the years that you're digging into, because, of course, the Romans burned 
and the Christians buried their bodies. Why did the Christians bury their bodies in Avanche as well as other places? Because they understood that the future belonged to God and this personal God was going to be there, the same unchangeable, and he had made a promise, and that is the bodies were going to be raised from the dead. And though they weren't superstitious about it at all, yet nevertheless, they didn't want to destroy what was so, as with their own hands deliberately, what was so precious to the God who was going to be there. History's different. Now I come, and I am on these hills again. And I think of down here at Olam and Egg at the time of the Reformation, and I see a man with a beard, and he's teaching school in Egg. And of course, he's our good man, Gehem Pharrell. And he's, pre he's teaching in the school. And pretty soon there's a big riot there. There's a big riot because he preaches the gospel so clearly and so definitely in the midst of the then Roman Catholic world. And as he preaches it, we find him then set loose and he comes to our little church in Olon down here that some of us love in its architecture. And he preaches there and he comes up this road right, right here. Right here and up the road undoubtedly right by Jane and Betty's home. Up that old steep road that kills us every time we go up it. And he came up it too. This is, where, this is where Pharrell walked. And he preached the gospel in Waymo and they threw him out and pushed him out. But it happened where? Don't you see what I've said? Don't you see what I've tried to do? Look at history one way and you shrink and become nothing. Look at history the other way and suddenly every place and every moment becomes wonderful because there's somebody who is really there and we know who he is because he has revealed himself and I no longer am nothing. Uh, I know something I never saw before, a little nameplate on the upstairs apartment. I went up and it had the name Madame Hoffman. Monsieur Hoffman was then in the cemetery, but Madame Hoffman was there. But there was a, it's right in the same structure. It's very different now because God was there. He understood God was there. We are here. There's no break. There's no break in the structure whatsoever. It's simply this. All history now looks different. The very history that killed us before is the very opposite now. History seen it as autonomous. History with nobody there in the sense of a real God being there. History grinds us up like grain in a mill. History grinds us up and suddenly I begin to cry and say, Who am I? In the midst of flowing years, countless bulging walls that break, and the graves of men I cross and whose men will cross my grave. In this view, I am killed by history. When I look at history the other way, through the grid of God being there and the history, the continuity, the history as we know it, with our secular line of history brought in contact with our biblical line of history, everything now becomes totally opposite. Being opposite is a very simple and a very profound place. It is just every one of us now is like Noah. And that is, as I said, wherever Noah was in the ark, it didn't matter where the ark grounded, he could build the ark because whenever and wherever the ark grounded, God was there. And it's exactly the same to us now. This is who we are. Am I in the depths of the salt mine that runs under this hill way back over here, someplace way back in the salt mine? It doesn't matter. I can speak and God is there. Am I in Grion or am I in Hong Kong? Nothing changes. Or seeing it another way, which is perhaps even more important, am I walking in the mountains? Am I here in a Sunday morning church service? Or am I washing dishes? It doesn't matter, because somebody, the same one, is there. I'm face to face with him.
I'm face to face with him. Think of now the 90th Psalm again. Again, in this relationship, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. But don't forget that isn't the end of the psalm. It's the beginning of the psalm. The end of the psalm is like this. Let thy work, you, O personal God, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Just an old poetical expression of yesterday, because this is a prayer of Moses long, long ago. Not at all. It's totally modern. It runs like this. And that is, because God is there to work, then there suddenly is meaning to the work of our hands. That's it. That's it. But not only that, there is the beauty of the Lord. And because there is a beauty of the Lord, and then a beauty of the Lord that can be upon us, now beauty has meaning. Suddenly aesthetic is not junk. This is why, but for no other reason. No other reason. But it's not only now that aesthetic abstractly has meaning, but something more. And that is, my life may have beauty. Isn't that wonderful? But it all hangs on the simple point. The existence of the God who is there, that he is there, that he works, and he, there is a beauty of the Lord, and so our work has meaning, aesthetics has meaning, and my life can have beauty as well as meaning. But notice something with care. This doesn't go if God is just an idea in the mind of man. It does not go. He must be there, and he must be this personal God who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. It cannot be just an idea in the mind of men, nor can it be merely a somatic solution of the word God. It cannot be. But in the light of the fact that God is there, this God, not just the word God, but this God, then whether I turn in my bed on a restless night or I watch with understanding eyes, the turning of the year. The personal God is there. He is there. And now it is not only from the patriarchs to us that he is there. It is not only from birth to death that he is there, but he is there beyond death as well, and all life is changed. All life is changed. Solomon can say, under the sun all is vanity. But under the sun is not all there is because God is there after life for us as well as through the years. Through the years, through space, he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He is always there in the future. From life to death he is there and there is no difference because we hear Paul saying these marvelous words, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What makes the difference? The same thing that made the difference through the sequence of history in space and time makes the difference now in the total of life. Because after death, they may bury the body, but it makes no difference because for the Christian, the one who has come to God through Christ, it is still the same beyond death, the same God, this personal God, with infinite 
eternal and unchangeable is there. Now the 23rd Psalm suddenly has meaning rather than just a, just a, a, a sort of a pious religious romanticism. If it said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, down through the whole 23rd Psalm, but stop to death, it would only be a pious romanticism. But it isn't that. David, like Moses, understood it, this was something much more. So the last verse is this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It doesn't stop there. And I will dwell in the house, and the Hebrew can be household of the Lord forever. It doesn't stop at death. It doesn't stop at death. No chance back of God. And current events do not take God by surprise. No, no chance back of God. And current events do not take God by surprise. I go through the years. I go through space. It makes no difference. I have talked of years in terms of thousands. But it's also true in a lifetime, from birth to 70, 80, 90, or whatever it is, years of age. We used to take the trash to the city, to down to the little dump, you remember, at the end of the village. We don't have to do it anymore. And down we go pulling the trash car. Trash. Junk. Junk. We live in a day of junk. Junk art. Junk art. Anti-philosophy. Anti-theology anti-everything, and I have a load of it in a cart. Junk. Down we go, car pulling the junk behind it. But as I walk down the road to throw away the junk, I distinguish myself from the junk, because as I pass the road where Pharaoh walked 500 years ago or so, I know God walked with Pharaoh, and God walks with me. In the same piece of geography, geography only a few years later, the same God is there, and therefore I can distinguish myself from the junk in the cart. But it's because he is there. That's the reason it makes the difference. But it isn't only something like junk in a cart. It's in the most simple as well as profound things of life. So if one washes the dishes and then dries the dishes and then slowly walks up the stairs, totally fatigued, the I am of the burning bush is where the dish towel is left folded. And he stands waiting at the head of the stairs. This is the difference in life. He stands waiting at the head of the stairs, though he's still there where the dish towel remains folded. And in 130, Psalm 139, 9 and 10, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy hand shall hold me. He is not just waiting for me at the head of the stairs when I am so fatigued, but he leads me and he holds me. It isn't just a bare concept of presence, but he is there, if I am his child, to lead me and to hold me. Now, looking at the two views of history, we can say this in conclusion. Yes, all history is different now, both in the mind of wisdom as a man looking at the long years of history and looking at the moment-by-moment -moment history of life, looking at it this way and understanding that he is there and who he is, understanding this, it is not only now that history is different abstractly as a subject, but I am different. I am different in the light of the fact he is there. And the reason everything is different is simply this, because indeed there is a personal God who is infinite, 
eternal and unchangeable. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that thou wilt make us to understand that these are not word games, but thou art really there. And thou art this personal God who dwelt before all things and created all things, not as an extension of thyself, but truly created out of nothing and brought all else, including ourselves, into existence. And then, our Father, that thou art the same through all these centuries of history, and as we have gone back only a little way, considering the dates that we know from the caves of 20 and 1,000, 30,000 years ago, yet we know there was no difference at any, any change, any place. As we've gone all the way back beyond these caves and then to the long time of, uh, of Adam himself walking with God, we know that from his walking with God on the other side of these dates, whatever they are to our own day, everything is different. And make us to understand as we walk out of this room that the reason it is different and the reason I can tell myself from the junk in the car is because thou art there. And if thou were not really there, or thou wert only an ideal in the minds of men, or thou wert only a word, if thou wert not there, the personal God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, that in reality I would have no real reason of being able to understand the meaning of life or the concept of what occurs after death, but not only that, I would have no reason in, in practice to understand, be able to differentiate myself from the cart full of junk or the chaotic noise of the worst screeching of the machines from what men call music and art. We thank thee, God, that thou art there, the personal God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and that when we were sinners by choice, thou hast given us a solution for our separation and alienation from thee on the basis of Christ's finished work in history, and that this too is in space, in time, and in history, a finished work, wherein now we can come this morning and walk out of this place, and indeed dry the dish and fold the towel and walk to the head of the stairs, and be able to know and to speak to thee, and to call thee Father, this God who is there. We thank you, Father. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.